Hi, I'm Joseph Marx, and this is EconoPolitics, the official podcast of the Economics and Politics section of LASA. Each week, we engage with section members and professional colleagues working in the region and dealing with many of the same issues that we follow. Our aim is to promote greater dialogue and creative synergy among all. Welcome to today's show. Welcome to a new season of EconoPolitics. Today's guest is Matthew Taylor, Associate Professor at American University in Washington, D.C., and author of a new book, Decadent Developmentalism, The Political Economy of Democratic Brazil, by Cambridge University Press 2020. Welcome, Matt. Great to see you. Thank you. Great to be here. Let's go straight to the essence of the book, and perhaps we can begin by asking you to summarize the bank's, uh, the book's uh, main arguments and explain the book's relevance. Thanks. Yeah, well, it's great to be here. The uh, basic idea of the book is to try to understand why it is that despite a great deal of reform in Brazil over the past 35 years since the transition to democracy, we really haven't seen the kind of shift that we would expect, uh, both in institutions and in policies, but also we haven't seen the results that we would have anticipated. And so, um, you know, there are a number of questions unique to the tr Brazilian growth trajectory, including um, extreme inequality, but also fairly low growth, fairly low savings, fairly low productivity. And that's despite uh, more than 30 years of, of hyperactive reform. So the, the book tries to look at this, and I think simplifying greatly, the essential argument is that the political institutions of Brazilian democracy in many ways constrain what is possible uh, to either make the state, the developmental state, which is a legacy, a 70-year legacy, um, make that developmental state more functional or uh, alternately might permit a transition to a different path uh, towards development, which is often referred to as the neoliberal path. And I'm agnostic as to which path is taken, but I think that what Brazil has settled into is a very interesting path where political institutions are neither strong enough to constrain the developmental um, uh, mechanics, let's say, of the of the economy, uh, nor uh, to to really permit a free market to function. So, <clears throat> again, I'm agnostic as to which of those paths could work, uh, or should work, or should be adopted. But the the fact of the matter is, it's the political institutions that make it very difficult for them to function. After so many failed policies and persistent below average economic growth, one would expect that by now there would be signs of disruptive uh, contributions by the private sector. Um, what has been their role uh, looking back over the last 30 years and particularly most recently? Have, haven't um, they amongst themselves come up with, um, with any different plans of how to, how to grow? Yeah, and I, I you know, I, I want to be careful. I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but uh, the fact of the matter is when we begin to look at the combination of both 
what what uh, Ben Ross Schneider has called hierarchical market capitalism, a structure of firm life uh, in which uh, you you get sort of a, a number of um, industrial groups that are kind of at the at the top of the the hierarchy. When we look at the the hierarchical market economy as it developed in Brazil, one of the most interesting phenomena I think is that. Um, this hierarchical market economy is closely tied to the developmental state. And so I've, I've referred several times to developmentalism here. It might be worthwhile just to take a step back and say, what is developmentalism? Well, developmentalism is this notion that the state can play a role in kind of muscularly pushing the economy in a new direction. And that, of course, involves creating incentives for firms. That involves creating an incentive for businesses to go in particular directions and not in others. Um, it also involves a political uh, act, which is trying to constrain firms. And this is where the state has been um, uh, particularly bad. But um, one of the reasons for that has to do with democracy, and that is that when you begin to look at the largest firms in Brazil that are Brazilian-owned and therefore more likely to become involved in politics, they are deeply embedded in the, the political um, campaign finance. They are deeply tied to political elites. Uh, the relationships in many cases between firm owners, uh, owners of Brazilian firms and um, Brazilian politicians is decades long. Uh, and so you kind of have this peak uh, organization at both the economic level and at the firm level and at the at the political uh, on the political scene. And so um, it's a it's a very interesting dynamic because uh, there is this um, hierarchical market economy that Ben Ross Schneider describes, but it's intertwined with the state in ways that aren't always self-evident uh, to the external observer. And so if we're going to think about the organization of the Brazilian economy, we might break it into three different segments. One is the state itself. A second is Brazilian uh, private capital. And then a third is multinationals. And in the, in the book, I actually look at the largest 519 firms in Brazil. These are both financial sector as well as industrial firms. And uh, when you begin to look at the distribution of foreign ownership versus domestic ownership, you see that Brazilian firms really dominate where Schneider would expect them to, uh, to dominate, and that is uh, precisely in sort of low-value-added commodities trading, um, not extremely sophisticated forms of firm uh, action or activity. And foreign firms, the multinationals, dominate in the high-value-added, high-innovation, um, the, the areas where they require a very um, specialized labor force. And so it's, it's a very clear picture. There's one exception to this picture, and that is uh, banking, where Brazilian banks dominate. And there's a sort of an oligopoly of the five largest banks, two of which are state-owned, 
and three of which are private sector. So uh, you can see already in this division where you have kind of on the one hand commodities producing low innovation, low productivity, low value added um, firms, which tend to be Brazilian, and then on the other side, multinationals. Uh, and the problem, of course, with multinationals is they don't get involved politically. They tend to want to sit out the political game because, one, they can go to other jurisdictions. Two, they don't want to draw attention to themselves as foreign. And so they are in a very convenient situation where they come into the protected Brazilian market. They benefit behind the protective wall that's been built up over you know, seven decades. Uh, around the Brazilian economy and in many ways they try to look Brazilian but they don't get involved in politics and so that leaves kind of a vacuum which is filled by domestic firms which are in this sort of low productivity sphere and they don't they don't necessarily need to push Brazilian firms don't necessarily want or need to push for reform uh, and um, in many cases, even if they were in favor of reform, they're loath to push for reform because doing so might put them on the wrong side of government. And because of the kind of intertwined relationship between the state and the Brazilian firms, uh, it's very dangerous for them to play a role that you know means sticking their neck out for you know pushing for change. And so you get into what I call defensive parochialism, where there's an effort to defend against change, any change that might hurt us. This is sometimes referred to as sort of interest group politics. But I argue that it's a little bit more than that, because uh, it really uh, is, is it's defensive to preserve the status quo, but it's also parochial trying to defend our particular interests and trade our interests against other other uh, sectors' interests. And so uh, you get this very interesting um, panorama, I say, where, where Brazilian firms are kind of defending against change, watering down change, diluting change. Foreign firms are not particularly involved. The one sector that's been particularly dynamic in, in recent decades has been the banking sector. But even there, there's this trade-off between the state's action and private sector banks action and the state in many ways is taking up the slack and providing credit to the private sector while um, private sector banks are you know sitting high and mighty and enjoying um, very high interest rates and being able to draw on um, uh, a, a fairly um, uh, privileged market for government debt instruments. So, so the book covers the period starting um, in 85, 1985. Um, and is it possible to, um, to make a statement regarding whether rent-seeking has gotten worse or, or not since then? I mean, uh, we've gone through, through different types of uh, political arrangements, um, different strategies, um, but rent-seeking continues. I just wonder, uh, and with the different flow of um, foreign direct investment, I just wonder if, uh, if it's gotten any worse. Yeah, I, I, I don't uh, really try. I'm, I'm looking more at continuities across the period than perhaps at um, trajectories. And so I don't really try to look at this. You know, 
I, I guess what I would draw attention to is oftentimes when we talk about developmentalism as a policy set, we automatically jump to thinking about the Workers' Party time in government, partly because, especially under Dilma Rousseff, uh, the Workers' Party re was really, you know, very eagerly taking up the mantle of developmentalism. Uh, but one of the things that I try to point out in the book, drawing on the work of, of many people who precede me, like Al Montero and um, Leslie Armijo, is that uh, developmentalism has been in many ways a constant across a number of different governments. And so when I speak, when, you know, the book title is Decadent Developmentalism, Decadent refers, if you look at the dictionary uh, definition, it's luxuriously self-indulgent uh, is one definition of decadence. Um, and developmentalism is, of course, the use of the state. And if we, uh, for, to try to uh, achieve developmental goals. And if you actually look at governments with the possible exception of only two governments, the Kohler administration in the early 1990s, and, um, you know, we might, we can pick uh, apart whether we think Temer and Bolsonaro have, uh, have uh, actually changed things all that much. But really, even under the PSDB, the Social Democrats led by Fernando Henrique Cardoso, the state really preserved an enormous amount of power. The government, which has often been referred to as a neoliberal government, tried to preserve many of the institutions of the developmental state. The, um, you know, it, it, it never privatized Petrobras. It didn't privatize the Banco do Brasil. It didn't privatize the Caixa Econômica Federal. And so I think that we can say that there's, at the very least, we can argue uh, convincingly that there has been this trajectory of neo-developmentalism across all of the years of uh, the democratic regime. And that includes, uh, in my view, to a slightly lesser extent, but it still includes the Temer and Bolsonaro administrations. And we're seeing this play out even today. I think you've probably seen the news about the exchange rate in Brazil, uh, a desire to change the fiscal rules uh, in the past couple of days expressed by, uh, you know, high neoliberal Paulo Guedes, the finance minister. Uh, and um, why is that? Well, I, I, I think because there is this reliance on the role of the state, uh, a reliance on providing compensatory social policies to make up for the fact that growth has essentially become a residual in the Brazilian developmental policy set. All right. Fabricio has just joined us. Fabricio, I'm sure you have plenty of questions for Matt. I'm completely lost. Hi, Matt. Hi, how are you? Oh, good. How, Joe? Um, Matt, um, from what I used from your book on a chapter a couple of months ago, uh, on the title of the book is quite interesting. So a bit of self-promotion to the podcast. It's not paying the rent. Um, and a lot of people usually get some, some ideas on this developmental agenda as some sort of recipe to um, advance 
It's a way to, to outline insti bad institutions or to advance institutional record. Um, I think um, I'm not being clear. Let's see if I can get a bit better. Um, the, the idea of this book, Matt, was to, to show that these developmental ideas from CEPAL and so on were the real um, motor of developmentalism, not institutional. And what your book shows that institutions important are really important. And when they're not well designed and when they're um, the, the path dependence across time and space. So time, because we have all the this ill-equipped institutions over over years and space, because we have a very different distribution of how these institutions, the Brazilian state uh, spread across the country. So um, my, my question out of this is, do you think that we can get any better in the institutional design, even if we have this decade in development list um, in a spatial division in Brazil? So with the North suffering even more with this de de uh, decadent de developmentalism and the South with stronger institutions um, um, faring slightly better, let's put this way. If it doesn't make any sense. It, it does make sense. It does make sense. And I, I think um, you're actually being diplomatic because you're pointing to a potential weakness in my book, which is, you know, given the complexity of what I'm addressing, I, I, I don't really um, tackle the subnational. And the subnational is very important. But, you know, I guess my, my defense would be that the, the subnational is actually uh in some ways incorporated when we think about developmentalism because so much of government policy is is determined by federal institutions and there's been a, a major cleanup i mean this is a, an important change to recognize that took place especially in the 1990s in trying to clean up some of the most uh, pr um, profligate state level institutions in brazil including the state banks but um, if I could just take a step back, I mean, the central argument of the book is, um, again, about institutional complementarity. And I break it down a little bit more than I have so far in, in answering your questions into five different domains. The macroeconomic, um, the notion of developmentalism writ large. Secondly, the microeconomy and how firm life is structured, and I've already spoken a little bit about that in response to Joseph's question. Uh, third, the, the macro-political and the way in which coalitional presidentialism actually makes it very difficult um, to, to engage in wholesale reform especially by comparison to other Latin American countries. And so we have this consensual politics of coalitional presidentialism, which makes it um, difficult, you know, and here I, I, I'm in, in um, slight opposition to Marcos Melo and Carlos Pereira, who talk about the importance of checks and balances. And I, I guess what I see is that um, coalitional politics oftentimes override the kinds of checks and balances that we would think would m help to make reforms, um, I, I guess, more effective at tackling interest groups, at tackling 
um, uh, the, the opponents of reform. And, and as a consequence, uh, you have this kind of go along to get along politics, tomala daka. Yep. Um, and um, this, is, this is, I think, very important to explaining why it is that the developmental state as it exists under democracy has failed to impose controls on firms, on economic activity that would either move them in a more developmental, effective developmental direction or in a more neoliberal direction. The, just, to, just to wrap up then, the, the fourth dimension is really the micro-political and exactly how the developmental state, the sort of bureaucracy is capable of imposing controls or not. And, and I'll sh I, I try to show in the book through a number of different anecdotes from, and examples and case studies of, um, for example, the auto regime under Cardoso, the Zona Franca de Manaus under all governments, the Plano Brasil Maior under Dilma Rousseff's government, um, the uh, usinas, the, the, the ethanol sector across a number of governments. In all of these cases, the micro-political uh, control mechanisms that would be required to make developmentalism function were undermined by the macro-political uh, system by the by uh, coalitional presidentialism and the final uh, sort of institution that fits into this very big framework is the uh, bureaucracy and it's it's very interesting because when we actually look back at the changes that have taken place in Brazil over the past generation the most significant changes don't emerge from the political system writ large. They don't emerge from uh, coalitional presidentialism. They emerge from this autonomous bureaucracy. So mm -hmm. just to give you a couple of examples, you know, if we think about fiscal reform in Brazil, it began in the 1980s and it began in the treasury and in the finance ministry. Uh, if we look at anti-corruption, of course there was some leadership from above, but much of the many of the gains that made Lava Jato even thinkable in the mid 2010s came about because of incremental changes that had been um, made possible by the federal bureaucracy. Uh, another area in which this has played out, and and here I draw on the work of a number of scholars, but. Um, another area where this has played out, this incrementalism led by the bureaucracy, is in healthcare. Uh, and so the, the interesting thing about this fifth dimension of, of the bureaucracy is that it simultaneously permits incremental change, but it also imposes a very strong fiscal cost on the state. And that leads back to the macroeconomic problems that make it very difficult for Brazil to engage in the kind of savings and investment that would lead to to higher growth. So I'll wrap up there with the sort of. No, that's fine. Just just was really convoluted because they parachuted and Justin said, Fabrice is here, so I'll start talking. Um, let me let me just to, to try to clarify my question because um, when I read your book, the first time was for the prize for the section prize, the economics and politics prize, um, and at the same time I was reading uh, the Revista Piauí, and João Moreira Salles has a very good set of of uh, literary um, reportage, some sort of, of long articles on how 
land property rights in the Amazon were designed. And um, I have the, the main comment here in front of me. So what he says is that basically what the military regime did at the time with the property rights in the Amazon specifically was to create some sort of spaghetti bolt saying that part of the rights are from the city, part of the rights are from the state, part of the rights are from the union, and no one actually knows um, who the land belongs to. So it's clear how your your it's not that i was was accusing you of, of um, no no <laughs> shied away something from the book now it's like this explains a lot how it's not even anecdotal it's evidence the thing exists so how a bad institutional design and educating developmentalism can create a long-term problem for development and institutional design in the future but I have a question. Now it's a provocation. Moving from the book to reality and thinking about, um, you've just mentioned Paulo Guedes and Bolsonaro and uh, the Bovespa going down yesterday with this furateto thing. So if Brazil failed on the first attempt with developmentalism and failed to um, set a, a firm grip on neoliberalism, so how can we think about Brazil post-Bolsonaro, because Bolsonaro managed to destroy developmentalism and managed to not implement any neoliberal or liberal policies. So what do we have now? Because it's not only not only uh, developmentalism that's decadent, it's neoliberalism with uh, new neoliberalism with new developmentalism in a decadent fashion. So what do we have now? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question. So I'm just going to pick apart at little pieces of it, and hopefully it'll come together into a bigger whole. But I, I guess I, my first point of contention is to be careful and say I'm not sure that developmentalism always failed. Uh, and so you know, let's be let's recognize that you know under the military regime there were periods in which Brazil grew faster than almost any country in the world. Um, and there may have been years where it was the fastest growing. And this laid the groundwork for just an enormous boost of, of industry, growth of industry and so forth. So I, I wanna just be careful. I don't think it's always failed, but I think that um, as many authors have pointed out, there's a there's an easy phase of development and there's a much more difficult phase of development which is you know moving away from just raw industry into more value-added innovation intensive uh industry and um there are of course challenges that are not unique to brazil of being a commodities producer and uh you know brazil when the military actually began the developmental experience experiment or even before you know in the 1930s part of this was to get away from commodities production uh, and i think brazil has never quite gotten away from that and so you know i, I want to be cognizant of some structural factors that that are really go beyond the analysis in the book uh, but but when we actually think to the politics of reforming the developmental state in either direction, the neoliberal or the developmental direction, I think it's useful to point to um, uh, some areas in which 
there's enormous continuity. And so even under Paulo Guedes and Bolsonaro, who came in and said, you know, we really have to do away with this nanny state. Um, I, I, I cite in the book uh, a great moment where uh, Guedes goes to the Zona Franca de Manaus, the free trade zone of Manaus, which absorbs just an enormous um, percentage of GDP, equivalent almost to the amount that was spent on Bolsa Familia on an annual basis. Um, and he goes there and he says, we got to do away with this. We have to do away with this. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he, he basically says in, you know, no uncertain terms, this is unsustainable. And within three months, he's back there saying we have to uphold the Zonas Franca de Manaus. So what happened there? You know, I, obviously politics happened there. Um, the, the second thing, though, I would as a response to your to your question, uh, you know, you talked about what does this mean for neoliberalism? I think it it's curious because neoliberalism has always been the sort of poor, younger sibling in Brazil. And so um, drawing on other people's work, I have a citation in the book where I point out that in the past 70 years, of every 10 years, only three could be even remotely classified as neoliberal. Um, so developmentalism has been dominant. The other thing to point out is the years in which developmentalism were, was dominant were in many ways the years in which ben Brazil was benefiting from, the commod from commodities booms and from um, real um, growth booms. Uh, sometimes because of developmentalism, but sometimes because of extraneous factors. Whereas the years in which neoliberalism was ascendant were years in which Brazil was, the economy was contracting. And I think we're seeing this again with Bolsonaro. You know, one of the problems is that um, the years in which neoliberalism has been ascendant have been years in which Brazil has not done well. And I think that that contributes to this cycle of doubling down on developmentalism. So I, I, I want to hear your, I hope that helps to address your question, but- It does, it does. Just let's a quote here because it, it, that's why I, I mentioned that because you, you, you wrote, a chance and behavior can change the rule. Failure to, to, apt to, to apply the rules or failure to comply with the rule or failure to recognize the rule, for example, might all lead to change. And we've seen this happening all over the place during Bolsonaro. So Bolsonaro has failed to apply the rule. Bolsonaro has failed to comply with the rule, particularly now this week, right? So with the, the change of the, the death of Augustus. Um, and he has, has failed to recognize the rule. So it's page 14, Matt, if you want to look for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and do you think we, we're going to see any change? Even if, if you have this change of behavior. Yeah. So, you know, um, I think my I, I, I shy away in the book from making many policy recommendations, partly because I think that that's something that Brazilians should do. And I am not a Brazilian much as I would like to be. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess my my overall recommendation is. Uh, 
You know, um, as we look at the process by which change happens in Brazil, effective change doesn't happen in Homeric ways. It doesn't happen in kind of Herculean bursts of change, big bang change. It happens in very small incremental stages. And this is not just under Brazilian democracy. This is typical of Brazilian history over time. I think it's typical of big countries, especially big federations, right? Um, and so there are people out there like uh, Sergio Abranches who have, have argued, you know what, we actually need to just rethink Brazilian democracy. We need to rethink the constitution. We need to, uh, Abranches has said, we need to have a reconstituent assembly to reimagine the country. And, you know, that I'm not, I'm not arguing against that. But I do think that what we are likely to find is that in the long haul, in a country like Brazil, the more effective changes will be incremental changes that add up over time, as opposed to, uh, you know, sort of Herculean muscular attempts to change things. And um, I guess what I would argue is that there needs to be a choice for one or the other, developmentalism, making it effective. I'm not arguing against developmentalism necessarily. I'm arguing that the developmentalism that has been in place in Brazil has not been effective. And as a consequence, it's extraordinarily regressive. It's extraordinarily damaging to growth prospects. And it's not, therefore, achieving what developmentalism claims to want to achieve. Uh, similarly, though, I don't think neoliberalism has, uh, when it's been ascendant in Brazil, and that's a huge term, by the way, so I know I'm summarizing an awful lot in that term, but, um, you know, if, if we think about neoliberalism as, generally speaking, a move towards a more efficient economy and all the rest of it, the uh, a move towards a, a less governmental form of organization of the economy. The fact of the matter is Brazil's neoliberals have really not pushed to move away from a system in which politics tends to reign supreme. Uh, and so, you know, politics in the sense of keeping a number of um, appointments open for allies, keeping budgetary amendments for allies, um, trying to govern politics through a system in which uh, you are constantly putting together alliances that are often 70, 80% of Congress to pass pretty piffling reform. And so I guess what, what the sort of incremental change that would be needed to change Brazil's developmental trajectory really have to be reforms at the margin that improve the coherence of politics for example, diminishing party fragmentation, that increase the control mechanisms that the state has at its disposal, like the autonomy of regulatory agencies. Um, if you're going to go in a developmental direction, improving the strength of pilot agencies. You know, Brazil has over the time had, over time tried to impose uh, create pilot agencies that would control an, a strategy of development, but those have typically been undermined by coalitional politics. Um, 
And then, you know, most importantly, perhaps, is as we've seen repeatedly, even in the Bolsonaro administration, you know, Bolsonaro, the reason I say even in the Bolsonaro administration is not because I think that he's any paragon of virtue, but because when he came into office, he said, I'm not going to play the coalition game. Right. But if you look at who is running the Bolsonaro administration, the chief of staff is from the PP, the um, Ciro Nogueira, the, the Centro, as they call it, the, the big center, the, the parties that are mercenary transactional parties are governing Brazil. I, I dare say Bolsonaro governs less than the Centro. And so when you actually look at who gets nominated to the Supreme Court, who gets nominated to the accounting tribunal, the Tribunal de Contas, who gets nominated to all of the control agencies in the Brazilian federal government? They are almost universally representatives, not of parties on either extreme, like the PT or the Social Democrats. They are representatives of the Centro. And that means that defensive parochialism reigns supreme. So uh, that makes it very difficult to implement policies that actually move Brazil forward in one direction or the other uh, towards a more effective policy set. Great. Um, unfortunately, in a podcast, we can't really show some of the um, uh, graphs that are in the book. But one thing I wanted to point out was um, you, you make a very good argument that basically here's a book about development but in Brazil, growth is residual. In other words, it's basically what's left over after um, uh, basically social spending, discretionary spending. And then if you tie this up with the, what I would call the coalitional presidentialism trap, in other words, the president really does not have access to, um, to, um, to many funds after all the negotiating with uh, the coalitional partners and, and then there's obviously the salaries and all that so there's very little left at the end of the day um, so a two-part question one is how does Brazil break free of this coalitional presidentialism trap and um, after 30 plus years where is societal rejection of this failed system of uh, development or failed political system. There seems to be not very much uh, coming from uh, from civil society saying basta, you know, um, it, it's been too long and very little to show. Sorry, that's a great question. Um, I, I There's sort of two parts to the question that I want to address. So the first is growth as a residual which is not my argument. I stole that from uh, others, economists like Samuel Pessoa and others. But the, the, you know, I think that the the second part, of course, is why is there not as much public demand? And I, the two are very much interlinked questions because, you know, the starting point for the book is. Um, the argument that there is this fiscal imperative in Brazil. Governments are under a great deal of pressure to keep the fiscal um, accounts in check, partly because of the trauma of hyperinflation. And the trauma of hyperinflation 
really, I think, was generational. It, and one of the things we're seeing that's quite interesting is that younger generations apparently have less uh, of a concern with hyperinflation or with inflation generally than, than people who lived through the hyperinflation of the 80s and 90s. But um, there was also this generational uh, push towards greater social equity, which unfortunately was transformed in the 1988 Constitution into a demand for social spending that actually turned out to be quite regressive. And so you have on, uh, on the outside of the fiscal accounts a very strong constraint, it makes it very hard for Brazil to, to move away from um, where it is currently on fiscal uh, balance, and I call that the fiscal imperative. But it also privileges the use of fiscally opaque instruments. And so, um, you know, the fiscally opaque instruments are things such as um, the use of the BNDES, the National Development Bank, to lend to firms that probably don't need lending from a state bank, but um, it's a good way to placate uh, opposition and it's fiscally opaque. It doesn't it doesn't come through. The public is often not aware of it. Um, and industrial policy, subsidies, tax breaks, those kinds of things are all fiscally opaque. We often don't find out about them until late. Uh, we often have a hard time quantifying their effect. It can be a very significant effect. Uh, and in the aggregate, it is a very significant effect. And so the burden of balancing the fiscal accounts has fallen very heavily on the less well-off. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Brazilian state is very large in, in employment terms and in terms of expenditure. Uh, you know, certain parts of the state are worse than others. Uh, with my co-author Luciano da Ross, I've shown that, for example, the judiciary is by and large, by and far, I mean, um, more expensive in Brazil than in any other country by a long shot. And by comparison to OECD countries, Brazil is spending three, four, sometimes five times more on its judiciary than those, those wealthy countries as a percentage of GDP. Now, um, you know, that would be fine, I guess, if the judiciary were actually contributing to growth. Uh, but I think we, we can all agree that that's not the case. So um, you have this very regressive uh, spending structure that's been put into place. And then the question is, why doesn't this lead to protest? Why doesn't this lead to upheaval? Why doesn't this lead to change? I, and, you know, part of it is um, that, that because... Um, I think that there's been such an emphasis on trying to improve social spending. People aren't quite aware of the fact that when the government gives on the one hand, it's taking away on the other. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you actually look at social transfers, economists in Brazil have shown that social transfers in Brazil are net negative for the poor. So the amount of money that they receive through Bolsa Familia and the rest is actually negated by a regressive tax system, for example, uh, and by transfers to the wealthy and all the rest. So, you know, at the end of the day, there may be something there about the way in which these mechanisms work that make them difficult for the public to recognize as, as being as regressive as they are. 
But, uh, you know, and I also think it's important for us to recognize that there have been enormous protests in Brazil over the past seven years, uh, enormous political turbulence in Brazil, for sure. And so, you know, I wonder whether we're not seeing in many ways the kind of public upheaval that you're, you're you know, wondering about. Um, it hasn't, I think, partly because of the opaqueness of things, the opacity of of fiscal accounts, it hasn't really gelled into a conversation about how spending is taking place, what the actual policies are. It's kind of an inquit anger uh, and dissatisfaction rather than a targeted uh, protest movement. But it is present, and um, you know, I think whatever government comes into office. Uh, after next year's elections, we'll face this anger still. Great, Matt. We've, uh, we're quickly reaching the end, but we can't let you leave without asking our traditional econopolitics question here. We have a tradition of asking our guests to make one or two recommendations of their favorite places in the region or the countries where uh, they spend time doing research. Fab. But I cannot be in Sao Paulo because Matt lived in Sao Paulo. So that's basically right. No, right. I was going to ask him as, as oh. a former Paulistano. Uh, it could be in Sao Paulo or any other place. But so tell us, um, Mr. Taylor, what, um, what would you recommend for someone passing through Brazil? Um, where would you direct their, um, their attention? Well, uh, two memorable trips that I've taken that I just adored were uh, one time backpacking from São Luís do Maranhão down to Jericoacoara, Serra. And uh, just that whole trajectory along the coast is a gorgeous, I mean, varied, varied uh, set of places, but really gorgeous from start to finish. So that that would be my my top one, and and a favorite second place is the Pantanal. Uh, just you know, Pantanal is gorgeous for its wildlife, for its people, for um, remoteness and everything else. So uh, two great trips, and if you could do them, and you could spend three months doing each, you'd be in a really wonderful world. <laughs> great. Well, thank you, Matt. This has been a lot of fun. Very insightful. The book, again, is Decadent Developmentalism. For all the graduate students listening, uh, listen for the footnotes and references alone. This is a required reading. Um, Fabricio, last uh, message to Matt. Uh, just say thanks, Matt. It was a fantastic book. It's going to be reviewed by me for the Journal of Latin American Studies. So if you cannot get the book, which is a pity, you can get the book review. So um, that's it. Thanks. Thanks a lot for, for having some time to talk to us, man. It's a real privilege. Thank you both. It's great to be here.